Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 31st, 2016 at Payamet Performing Arts Center in Truro, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening was broken. We're going to choose our first storyteller. And when I do, let's please give them a huge round of applause. It is really hard to go first. You are in so, so you have so much support and love coming. Marjorie! <laughs> okay. Uh, cut me some slack here. I'm a virgin at this. Anyway, at this. Um, so, little context for you. It's 1973, and I'm 21, just barely. And um, I'm squatting in the dorms. Sorry, I'm squatting in the dorms at UMass and Amherst. I just graduated. You know, I knew the heads of residences and they let me squat there, you know, and I was on my way to work. And I didn't want to go to work. So I called up and I said, oh, gee whiz, you know, I mean, I just got my degree. It was a really exciting job. I was scooping ice cream at Friendly's. <laughs> and I called him up and I said, you know, I got some cramps, you know. I really, I really can't do this. So, you know, they said, fine, fine. And I proceeded to have the most insane agony here, right here. And I just did this, you know. And by the end of the day, I couldn't move. And so they took me to Northampton Hospital. Anybody who was up there at that time or knows anything knows it was not your most central medical facility. And um, I went into this room. And at 21 years of age, there's a lot of things I was a virgin about at the time. I had never been to a doctor, ever. Um, and um, certainly never to the, anyway, I went in this room and there's, a, there's this thing that you lie on, right? And I'm doubled over in pain. And I put my, and they say, these are stirrups and they walk away. And I'm like, stirrups? These are stirrups? You know, I don't, I don't know what part they want me to put in there. Well, they come in, and this guy comes in, right? And he's like 12 years old. Now, I'm 21, so for him to be 12 is really a miracle. And he's put your feet in here, you know, and he shows me. And he does this thing to me. And I'm freaked out. And it hurts a lot, and I'm doubled over. And he says to me, there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. Do you have a gynecologist? Now, I didn't exactly know what that name was, but all I knew is, is that my mother had a doctor in Springfield, and his name was Carpenter. So I said, Carpenter, he said, I'm gonna do some tests. So my feet are up in these things, and he said, I'm gonna do some tests. This was not pretty. So he does the tests, and I leave, and I go to my mother's house, and I hang out for the weekend, pretty much in the bathroom, pretty much doubled over. And I go on Monday or Tuesday over to, I'm in Springfield now, I live in Northampton, right? But I go to Springfield, and I go to the doctor's office, and I go in, and I'm, I'm in agony. I mean, I'm in agony. And I go in, I, and, and all, so I say, I have to go to the bathroom, you know. So I go into the bathroom, and there's some blood, right? And I think, well, they can't examine me. They can't do anything. This is blood. I have to leave. So I'm leaving, and this woman grabs me and says, where are you going? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm leaving. And the doctor comes out, and then the doctor comes out, and he says, you know, no, he didn't come out. They took me into a room, and there was this huge desk, 
completely empty. I mean, like, I'm talking like dining room table for 12, okay? And I sit down on one side, and this doctor's like over there on the other side, and he says to me, and he's, he's got this piece of paper, and he's looking down, he's writing on it, there's nothing else on the desk. And he says to me, how many times a week do you have intercourse? And I'm thinking, what are we talking here? And I said, I don't know. And he says, how many times a week do you have intercourse? And he looks up at me and he looks down and I said, I said, all right, you can't tell my mother, can you? You can't talk to my mother, right? And he looks, he looks up and I said, I'm a lesbian. And he says to me, he looks at me, he, puts his, he looks down his paper and he says, how many times a week do you have intercourse? And, I'm, and all of a sudden it occurs to me, I'm not even sexual. <laughs> so I said, I don't, I think. <laughs> so we go, so then they take me into this room and all these beautiful women are holding my hands and it's a wonderful circumstance until this guy comes in, right? And they have stirrups again and they put my feet up in the stirrups and he does that thing again. And he gets all excited and he calls out, we have enough, we finally, we have a pathology in the office, right? And so then another doctor comes in. He does the same thing to me. And then another one, okay? And then they say to me, you have to have surgery, go to the hospital. And I say, well, I can't, I have my father's car. And I gotta get, my mother doesn't drive and my sister doesn't drive and I'll meet you at the hospital. So I unfortunately have a little baggie with me. It's got some weed in it, what can I tell you? So I'm kind of freaked out, so I smoke the bag. Oh God, am I, because oh, I have no idea how long this takes. Just give me a few minutes, I'm so sorry. All right, so I smoke the weed, I get in the car, I go pick up my mother and sister. Before I do that, I eat a huge salami sandwich because I'm figuring I'm gonna be hungry, right? So I go to the hospital, they take me in, the most gorgeous woman, they give me a shot of something or other, and then the most gorgeous woman in the world shaves me, and off I go. Um, there's a lot of parts to the story, I'm gonna try and jump ahead. So I'm back in the hospital room, everything's done, um, and this doctor walks in and he says, I said, what happened, what happened? He's a young guy, you know and he was from some other country and his English was not perfect. And he said, cut it out, cut it all out. And I fell apart, right? So I said, no, okay, okay, okay. So then all of a sudden they're giving me a lot of medication and the nurses are getting really upset because whenever I have pain, I can have a shot. So I'm taking shots and shots and shots until finally these nurses are coming in and they're saying no. And they're saying like, we're freaked out here. This doctor said you could have as much medicine as you wanted. We don't know why he said that. We're not gonna give you shots anymore. This is how bad it was. So then the big doctor's coming and he decides, he says to the nurses, now remember it's 1973 and this was not the time when anybody got you out the bed, right? And they, he said, I want to meet with her and I want to meet with her in that room alone. And they're like, what? 
So they get me up, they stand me up, and I've got all the tubes and the wires and the whole thing, and they get me over to the other room, and I go into this room, and there's a table with a stirrup. And I think, you guys are nuts. <laughs> so the guy comes in, and he draws me a picture, you know, and he does this little ovaries and fallopian tube to the uterus thing, you know. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he says to me, thank you. No, he doesn't say thank you. He says to me, so this is what you have, and this is here, and he said, so why are you a homosexual? And I said, now you gotta understand, I'm post-surgery, I'm wrecked, and I'm wrecked, I'm broken. And this guy says to me, why are you a lesbian? And I'm thinking, well, here it is. I really like women. <laughs> you know, and he says, we in the medical profession have determined the cause of homosexuality. You know women who have deep voices. You know women who have hair on their body. That's a hormone imbalance. You had a hormone imbalance. I took your ovary and your fallopian tube. I cut out your lesbianism. You are not a lesbian anymore. I was upset. I'm 21 years old and this is really the first thing I know about myself. The first time I truly know something about myself. So the nurses come in and they take me back to my bed and the phone rings and it's my friends from Northampton and I say, I'm not a lesbian anymore and they cut it out. The other thing I noted in the moment was they had also, to my understanding, had cut out my ability to have children, which was really a bad idea too. So just to end this story, I wanna tell you that my friends immediately got in their vehicle, smoked several joints, came directly to the hospital where my roommate, who was this gorgeous, long blonde hair all the way down to her back, you know, we used to sleep together, snuggled together, no sexual stuff. She comes in, the lesbians are all over the place blocking the doors. <laughs> she comes in, she parts the tubes and gets into bed with me, right? And she's kissing on me and I'm thinking, okay, timing is everything. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, so I'm like getting like, yay, hooray. And all of a sudden she stops and she stands up and she says, and you're not a lesbian? And we have to the mic, Jerry. Uh, so before I tell you a story, we have two invitations for you tonight. Um, I run a, another story uh, slam event up in Newton. So on September 11th, uh, if you're from up that way, uh, come to our Nomad Story Slam in uh, Newton Highlands. So you're all welcome to that. And we're also inviting you, uh, this is the last mosquito tonight of, of this season. So we're inviting all of you to come down to the well in Wellfleet after the show and we've got our favorite piano player, Bob, and uh, we have a guitar, a piano, and if you've got a singing voice, come on down, have a pint, 
sing a song, play the piano, whatever. So that's my two invitations. Um, when we were kids, we were teenagers, we hated the MDC police. Uh, now, if you wanted to be a cop back then, and you couldn't get on the city force, you couldn't get on the state force, you couldn't pass the exam, or you're too short, or various things, the sort of police of last resort was the MDC. Now, the MDC, they were like the park, they, they, they oversee all the parks around Boston. So this was really the park police. But they had all the trappings of regular police. They had cars and guns and badges and whatever. And, they, and because they had such little authority, they wielded that authority as if they were God. Uh, didn't like the MDC police. Anyway, some number of years later, uh, the state decided that the entire MDC police force was just broken. And they disbanded the, the, the MDC police. And they folded those officers into the state police if they wanted to join. Some number of years after that, it was coming up to Halloween. And I decided to decorate my car. So I put these legs coming out of the back of the car, out of the trunk, two legs. And, you know, and that was my Halloween decoration. Drove around for a couple of weeks, and uh, people thought it was pretty funny. And one weekend, my wife and I drove down to New York City uh, to see our friend Scott and Zini. Um, the kids down in Brooklyn, they thought the legs were great. Uh, but while we were down there, my friend Scott uh, gave me a birthday present. It had been my birthday, you know, a few weeks before. I opened it up, and it was a jelly jar full of Scott's... Um, homegrown weed that he was very proud of that he'd grown in the basement and he had this whole thing. So I put it in my bag and thanked him and we had a great weekend. Sunday night, uh, my wife and I were driving home, we got up to Connecticut, we get on the Mass Turnpike, we're heading home, we're almost home, we're in Framingham or Natick or someplace. I'm driving down, the, I look in the mirror and I see a, a state police car flying up the left-hand lane and just as it's past me, all of a sudden, hits the brakes, whoop, pulls in behind me and turns on the lights. And uh, my wife starts freaking out, and I'm saying, relax, what if they got to bust us for Halloween decorations? And I'm thinking, this is pretty funny, they had seen the legs. And we get pulled over, um, and uh, we get in the breakdown lane, the cars stop, and the doors open, and on the passenger side, this, you know, state cop gets out. And out of the driver's side, this real little guy gets out of the car. And he starts walking up to us, and he's like halfway to my car, and I'm thinking, that's got to be one of those MDC cops. He's not big enough to be a regular state cop. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is not going to be a good thing. Um, so anyway, he comes up, license and registration. I give him a license and registration. He checks it out. He says, what is that in the back? And I said, uh, rather sheepishly, I said, it's, it's a Halloween decoration. You think that's funny? You think that's funny? Like a dead body hanging out of your car? That's a joke to you? And I'm like, well, I thought it was kind of funny. You know? and, like, and he's like, I want to see in the trunk. I said, sure. So I popped the trunk, and uh, Mari is freaking out. I'm going, relax. What are they going to do, you know? And uh, so uh, we can see them. The hood's up. We can see the guy is in there, and he's not just, like, taking a look in the trunk. He's opening bags, and he's going through stuff. And uh, a minute later, he comes up. Put your hands where I can see and get out of the car. I got no idea what's going on. I get out of the car. Next thing you know, I'm on the side of the car. I'm being frisked the side of the road. The car's going by. I'm freaking out. I don't know what this is. And all of a sudden, the jelly jar. Is this yours? Uh, yes, it is. He goes, uh, this looks like homegrown. Where did you get it? And I said, well, it was my birthday, and a friend of mine gave it to me. <laughs> and he says, I want his name, I want his address, and I want his phone number, and I want it right now. And I said, it, it was a friend. It was a birthday present. I'm not going to give you... You know, it's a birthday present. It's like, it's mine. Do what you got to do. 
Well, the guy goes nuts and he starts like yelling at me and he's badgering me and it's like, I want that. I'm it. And I'm just, and the thing is, I'm like quite a bit taller than this guy. And every time he says something to me and I say, anytime I open my mouth, it seems to make him matter. So I'm just like, I'm not saying nothing. And he's, you know, badgering, I want this number. And so this goes on and on and on. Uh, meanwhile, Mari's in the car the whole time. And uh, so eventually, all of a sudden, he's, he, he walks all the way around the car to her window. And she rolls her window down. And, he, and now all of a sudden, he's quiet and calm. Ma'am, uh, we have a problem here. Uh, I'm sure you didn't know about it, but your husband has a, a substantial quantity of class one uh, uh, illegal you know, substance, enough for, to be charged with trafficking. And he's not cooperating with us. Samari so says, could I? Uh, can I speak to him? Uh, yes, ma'am. So he leads her out of the car and brings her around to me. And Mari says, uh, I'm really scared. And I said, yeah, me too. And he said, but they, you know, they want us to give up Scott. And she goes, well, we can't do that. And I said, yeah, I know. So the cop says, um, so could you give us his name? And, uh, and we both say, no, no, we can't. You know, we're not going to give you the name. And at this point, the cop goes absolutely crazy and starts screaming all this psycho stuff. And he said, I'm trying to give you a break here. I'm trying to give you a break. If you were, if you were a punk black uh, teenager, you'd be in the station by now. I'm trying to help you here. I'm the good guy. I'm trying to help you. And, and, and you're assholes. And he's like screaming. And I'm like, we are freaking out. And we're just, we're not saying a word. This goes on for a couple minutes. And then getting back in the car. So we get back in the car. We are shaking. He, they, he goes back in the car. And now meanwhile, the other state cop, He's got no part of this. I think he's embarrassed by the whole thing. He's staying there out of it, the whole thing. They get back in the car, we see him on the radio. A minute later, they come out, door opens, he comes up, get out of the car. And I'm thinking, this is it, I'm going down. <laughs> I get out of the car, he brings me around to the hood of the car, it sits me down in the hood. So now, I'm looking eye to eye. <laughs> and uh, He's got the jelly jar, he's got this fierce look in his face, he's waving it, and he's freaking me out. And he, he says, what would happen if it disappeared? I'm like, I, 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 I don't know what you're asking. What would happen if, if I let you go? Would you stop smoking pot? I said, yes. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> he says, would you tell your friend to stop growing this shit? And I go, yeah, no, you wouldn't. And then he takes this thing and he's waving it, and all of a sudden, as hard as he can, he like throws it, throws it against like the, the rock wall, and it shatters into a million pieces, broken. And we're like wide-eyed. Then he slaps me on the back and says, "It's all over." And he starts laughing hysterically and says, "You can go home now." And uh, <laughs> we get back in the car. I'm like giddy, I just got a get out of jail free card. We start the car up and we drive home. But man, do I hate the MDC police. <laughs> Justin, Justin. Woo. Okay guys, astrology is okay. I just have friends that love astrology. So yeah, listen to your friends because it's important to the people that you surround yourself with. One of you told us that earlier, Jody or something. Okay, um, so I guess I will tell a story that is about being broken, and it'll be based in Wellfleet. So let's put ourselves into Ocean View Drive, and the most beautiful road in Wellfleet, and 
uh, a cottage in the middle of Ocean View Drive, kind of overlooking the counts. Not really, but imagine it. And this is a cottage that my great aunt bought when, I don't even know when she did, in the 1900s. And my whole family has been there for a very long time. And it's become a part of our uh, family. And there's a bunk room that we all grew up in, all the cousins that would all come at the same time and stay and live in this bunk room on the nights. And it's kind of like this tent in a weird way, but a lot smaller. And it can fit like 12 people, super crowded, eight people if everyone gets one bed. And it's all kind of screened because it's a garage. And the screens have these wooden panels that can kind of cover the screens so during a storm you're totally safe. So sort of imagine a storm is in this tent right now and you're, you're hiding with all your cousins and it's a massive thunderstorm and you can hear the waves crashing down at LeCount's beach and you're 12 years old and you have your older sisters there and your younger cousins and and yeah, I don't know, nostalgia of when you're young and you're at the beach and the reasons why you're here in Wellfleet or Truro in the first place. And there was these curtains that sort of blocked the girls from the guys because my aunts were all about genders because gender was binary to them, um, which, yeah. Uh, and so there was these curtains that blocked the girls in their bunks and the guys in their bunks. And I was with my cousins, and that lightning would just like crash, and thunder was rolling all over the place. And I had the great idea of like, let's open the, let's like open the like the wooden panels so that we just have screen doors, kind of as if we were in a thunderstorm right now, and we just had these things open, so rain like comes pouring in and whatnot. And so we snuck outside. Opened the, opened the doors. Our parents had no idea because it's totally set aside from the rest of the cottage. And started freaking out all the other, all the other cousins, like the five cousins that were on the other side of the curtain. And what would happen is every time a lightning would strike, I would run up and just like be like standing over one of their beds <laughs> and just kind of be like, ah! And, and then they'd see me, and then, and then they'd be like, oh, Justin, stop, you're super annoying. And then, and then I'd like scurry away and then like go somewhere else and then wait for a lightning strike and I wouldn't know where I was because it's pitch black. And then like a lightning would come and I'd be like, ah! And then I would just like be running around like 12 year old, like I was like definitely in whitey tighties too probably, just like kind of just, just being a fool, kind of being like, I'm the lord of the night, rah! but prepubescent voice and whatnot, and uh, yeah, a and then we had this brilliant idea to sort of really get him scared at this like massive thunder. We were going to kind of like all run through and jump on them and, and scare them and what whatever, but uh, yeah, what ended up actually happening is as we were gonna do that, we kind of ran into this curtain that was there, that was guarding us, and we just sort of shattered the, the curtain and broke it, and yeah, that's how Broken fits into that story. Uh, like, yeah, uh, and that's the story, yeah, 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 like, we love the outer cape, it's amazing, yeah, okay.
Here we go. Our next storyteller is James. Woo! James, I saw you put your name in. Okay. Uh, so this is really, uh, like, why would I come up here and do this? I was thinking that earlier. It's about vulnerability. And it's, it's the last thing anybody wants to be. And yet, it's like one of the best places to be. I've discovered through experience. Okay, I've only got five minutes. Um, so I'm 11 years old. I'm living out in Long Island with my alcoholic, rageaholic, narcissistic, insane mother who loves cats. And we have 32 of them. And it's in this sort of, this was 1971. And um, she had a lot of money. It was, it was a kind of a gated community, but not really. Um, and I was this fucked up 11-year-old kid, no father, crazy mother, just a lot of time by myself, a lot of weird stuff going on. But so I'm 11 years old. I'm not a happy kid, and uh, there's this girl who lives next door, and I'm hanging with this, this bunch of kids one day, and we're all over at this one kid's house, and I got this brand new bike, the Stingray three-speed with the sis sissy bar, you know, so you could get two people on there. And we're all over at this kid's house, and they're like, oh, let's go over to so-and-so's house. And this girl next door, her name was, her name was Dee Dee. She didn't have a bike. I don't know how she got over there. So I said, hey, I'll give her a ride. And inside, I was just, this was like a moment for me, you know, to get this girl on the back of this bike. And, uh... So everybody gets on their bikes, and I'm just psyched. You know, just, it was an unusual moment for me to feel joyful and happy. So we all start heading over to this other kid's house. And we're all heading down the hill. And I'm just riding, I'm just feeling good. And uh, I just, I start showing off, doing like S-turns as we go, and I lose control of the bike, you know, the high handlebars, they just start shaking, and we wipe out, and, um, and we're, we're just in a heap on the side of the road, and um, she's bleeding bad. I'm a little banged up. We're all sitting on the side of the road. She's bleeding, and her sister was there, her sister, Anne, and uh, she, she's holding her, you know, she's just holding her, and her sister's screaming her fucking head off, and there's a lot of blood, and she's unconscious, and I just, I just remember looking up, you know, I was looking up, and it was this beautiful day, and it was right about this time of year, because every time this time of year, 
I get this weird kind of dissociative state that comes and goes. I've been working on this, you know, a long time. And um, it was 1971, so there's no cell phones. And, you know, cars are just going by. I don't, it was weird. Anyway, I don't, I don't have any memory beyond that point. I was told ambulances came and this and that, but, and uh, so she died a couple days later. <sighs> and, uh, you know, my mom was like, she just didn't want to deal with it. And within a couple of weeks, I just kind of got sent off to this bad boy school upstate New York. So flash forward, I never had another thought or a feeling about this experience until I was about 30 years old when I was living in New Mexico doing construction and getting drunk and arrested and getting in a lot of just every week I'd get arrested. I had this sort of you know, this self-hatred, this, I was in this kind of self-exiled state. I would see, like, cops would have pulled someone over, and I would pull over and go up to those cops and say, what did you pull them over for? You know, like, hurt me is really what it was about. I was trying to punish myself. And um, anyway, I crashed and burned there. I got sober for about 15 years. And then I ended up in Boston. I was doing, I became a tree surgeon. And uh, suddenly I started getting cut with my saw, like, one, like once a week. I'd be up on a tree and I would just cut myself somehow. And I'd end up in the emergency room. And the first time it happened, I just freaked out and I left. So I don't know, just, it was a PTSD moment. Like, and I, what I realize now is that I was bringing myself to the emergency room to get this thing up and out, to heal it. And um, so anyway, years and years went by, a lot of therapy off and on. I was sober for 15 years and some other shit happened, started drinking again. So, so really it took me 56 years to be able to get up here and two $7 wines <laughs> to tell this story because that's the only way you can heal it. You know, you got to be able to say it and feel it and, and work through it. And, you know, I'm broken. I feel broken. I've always felt broken. Um, but, you know, what the fuck isn't broken, right? I mean, you live on this planet. How can you not be broken? If you're not broken, you're not alive in my experience. So, I don't know, I'm just really uh, grateful for this opportunity. Thank you. Ruby, Ruby, welcome Ruby to the stage. not really my real name. Some of you out there know that. <laughs> That's because my real name is really hard to pronounce. Um, I have a prop too. Can everyone see this? 
it's things that were broken that got reconfigured. Um, so this is a story about somebody who I've been friends with for a very, very long time. And so I'm more of the observer in this story. And this is a story about Deborah and her son James, who's the middle child, three boys. And um, James was always a very, very Buddha-like baby. He was really easy, slept, all those things parents pray for. <laughs> um, very artistic, kind of quiet and dreamy. And um, come graduating high school, he headed off to a state university in New York and didn't even make it through a semester and came back because he hit that 19-year-old mark where some people really get broken. And um, he became very volatile. Um, to the point where Deborah, who you have to understand is a, um, she's about this tall, but her personality is this big. Um, she's Italian when she wants to be, and she's Jewish when she wants to be. So you never quite know which one you should say, because she will contradict you as soon as you do. Um, but either way, you get an Italian mother, a Jewish mother, you've got somebody who is very, very invested in motherhood. Um, I think most of you would agree with that. So, so for her to see her boy broken, is a, it's a very, very hard thing as a parent to see your child break. And um, suffice it to say, it got so intense that she had to call the cops on her own son and have him taken away and put in jail for a night. And then he had to go to a psych hospital. What's super extra hard about this also is that Deborah is a arts therapist. So if you're the therapist yourself and you're calling for your own family member to go to the psych hospital, it's really extra super hard, I think. So he did his stint in the hospital. He came home and uh, he was seething at his mother. Anything she did was wrong. She couldn't cook anything that he would eat. She would wear clothes she'd always been wearing, and suddenly he told her she just looked like shit, and why is she wearing that, and why does she wear her hair like that? And it was just super toxic venom all to his mom. Uh, meanwhile, she's also trying to raise the younger child, and the older child's getting DWI for the third time. <laughs> so the whole family's kind of breaking. And... Um, my part in this is that I'm trying to just be a good listener whenever she calls me. Well, what happened? Deborah lives on Long Island, which is where our last story took place, too. She happens to live in an area where all of the old garbage that was dumped into the East River comes up with the tide and lands on the beach close to where she lives. And most of us view garbage on the beach as a lot of plastic crap these days. But um, Deborah was going out every single day on the beach. She was obsessed with walking the beach and collecting sea glass. And the sea glass is the garbage. 
And most of us feel like sea glass or like little jewels that show up. Um, she became so obsessed with sea glass that she had like so many bowls of it everywhere. She started giving it to her friends and then started saving the super special stuff. The garbage was all broken and suddenly she's got a special bowl on her coffee table that has Dutch delft pottery shards, Dutch pipes, um, certain kinds of glass that you can't find anywhere. So it's all suddenly becoming treasure. And it's clear to me that these walks on the beach are somehow what she needs to do to cope with what's going on with her kids and her family. And her son is still just raking her over the coals and not getting any better and smoking way too much pot and God knows what else. Um, well, it got to the point where she started putting the glass in her garden the way some of us would put pebbles or mulch. So now she's got shimmering gardens. And then she hired somebody to make a new paved walkway to her house and they embedded the sea glass in that too. So her whole environment is about reconstructing with broken bits. And, and she's still got too much of this glass and she can't stop walking because that's saving her. So she starts doing things like, she started out with like, you know, picture frames from, um, what the, Michael's, is that that big box store that sells? I'm from New York City, they don't have Michael's there, but. So she starts, well, we won't get there. We won't go there right now. There are some box stores entering Brooklyn. Uh, so she starts with picture frames. Then she starts with, you know, like votive candle things. Um, then she starts learning how to drill and she starts making jewelry and she's setting up at the crafts fairs and all of a sudden this whole experience with her broken child is giving her a hobby and another side career from being a therapist and she now has a company called Sea Glass Jewels and to me the best part of the story is she somehow knew how to heal herself and after about four years of this James came up to her one day and said, I really like what you're doing with all that glass. Would you show me how? Okay, can we please have Grace M. Growing up in an orphanage, the best thing about it is that you always have girls to play, play with and always girls to fight with. And one afternoon, um, one girl decided to just pick on me. And after some back and forth, I picked up a broom and I hit her in the head and I broke her head. <laughs> and uh, screams happened. The nun came, took her to the bathroom upstairs, and started to clean her up. 
And I'm thinking, oh God, what is gonna happen to me now? What kind of punish him, punishment am I gonna get? So I decided to tiptoe upstairs and I'm outside of the bathroom door and I hear the conversation between the nun and Elisa. And Elisa's telling her the story and the nun said to her, well, you know, you are older than her. You should know better. I'm not going to punish her because, you know, it's, it really was your fault. And from outside the door, I'm hearing also, ooh, I can beat up anybody, <laughs> break anybody's head, and get away with it. Well, a few weeks go by, and I'm in a fight now with this girl. We're both on the floor, fighting each other, grabbing hair, biting, and there's a bunch of girls around us, and they're each one calling their favorite names, and I think they're even making bets. And uh, in my mind, in the middle of this, I'm thinking, how old is she? How much older is she than me? And I realize she's about a month and a half older than me. And I'm wondering if that's part of my free card, non-punishment breaking head. And so as the fight, I start realizing that I'm about to lose, which it was horrible in my mind because I was like the tough girl, sort of. So I see a toy not too far away from me. It's a heavy toy and I take it and I bunker over the head and blood comes out. Loud scream, the girls stop, everybody just runs away. And um, the girl, the nun came and they take her upstairs to the same bathroom and I'm thinking, I mean, it's a good bet that I'm gonna get away with this too because, I mean, I'm younger. So I tiptoed upstairs and um, the nun asking her what happened and she explains it and she said, aren't you older than her? And she said, I, I don't know. And she said, you know, you girls gotta stop doing this. I mean, we're both about the same age. You gotta stop doing this. You know, I'll talk to her, but, you know, just stop it. So I'm tiptoeing downstairs and I'm thinking, oh, great, got, got away with another one. I don't remember if I ever got punished or not for that one, but about a month or so later, <laughs> there's another girl. This girl, I could not stand her because my sister loved this girl. The problem with this girl is that she's younger than me, about four years younger than me. And she's teasing me. Your sister likes me more than she likes you. And this has been going on for years. And I thought, she's not gonna get away with this anymore. And I start to beat her and we're punching and, and she's smaller than me. And I have to say, this time, I grabbed her, and I saw the bed, there was a metal bed, and I kind of grabbed it, and I just threw it against the bed, and she grabbed her head on the post of the bed. It wasn't really my fault, because it was kind of a sort of an accident, because, I mean, I threw her there, but I mean, it's not like I hit her. And 
the nun comes and uh, the girl goes upstairs and she's screaming louder than anybody. I mean, come on. And uh, she's telling the story and she said, you know, don't worry, she's never gonna do this to you anymore. I'm going to punish her. And the nun talked to me and she said, what happened? And I said, well, it was really an accident. And she said, for the third time <laughs> in about three to four months. And I said, it really, really was. And so she said, okay, I don't remember my punishment, but she said, you have to go to confession. And so I did that Saturday, I went to confession and the priest said, so what's your last sin since your last confession? And I said, I broke three heads. <laughs> and the only thing I could hear is the priest trying to not laugh. And that's the only thing really that I remember, but I never broke again. Somebody said. Okay, and our next storyteller tonight is Xander. Xander, please welcome Xander to the stage. Uh, so I've always been a very visual person. Um, I ended up going to Emerson College in Boston and graduated in 2009. And uh, about a week later, I moved out to Colorado in a 1990 Jeep Cherokee. Um, and I started a small video production company, uh, which consumed my life, and I loved every moment of it. Um, about a year later, uh, shortly after, shortly within a year, we ended up closing that business, and uh, I spent the next six years immersing myself in everything visual from TV to photography. I lived all over the country. I was lucky enough to work in New York, uh, British Columbia, uh, back in Colorado, Seattle, Portland, Maine, all over. And um, I really had my foot on the, on the pedal all the way down and burnt everything on both ends. And um, after six years of that, I, f I found myself in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And uh, I was working there. And when I wasn't uh, behind a camera, I was usually sitting in front of my computer screen. Um, or I was outside, but that computer really sucked me in, and I'd spend about eight to 10 hours a day, um, which I'm sure many people are accustomed to, and it's quite easy to do. On January 24th, 2015, I was uh, out skiing with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, skiing out in Wyoming is kind of the thing that uh, it doesn't just happen on the weekends, it's something that you do before work, uh, when you have a lunch break or uh, after work. And so this was kind of just a run-of-the-mill day for us. We were at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort and um, just having fun. It was a nice day, and uh, we were skiing in a bowl called Casper Bowl. And um, one thing led to another, and uh, we, started, we kind of met up with a friend, and then another friend joined us, and a friend of a friend. And before I know it, we were went from skiing with two people to skiing with about a group of six or seven. And we started skiing in a way that I wouldn't typically have skied by myself or with a friend, um, kind of leapfrogging, crisscrossing, um, which was a blast. And we were skiing really fast. And um, all of a sudden, I find myself in a position where I'm uh, splitting 
myself between two other skiers and I come around one side of a lift pole, lift tower, and uh, all of a sudden I look over my back right shoulder and there's another skier in our group uh, kind of on the same traje trajectory as, as I am. And um, I yell over my shoulder and I, I, uh, I roll, try to wave my pole, my ski pole in front of her face and um, she doesn't see me. And so before I know it, we've collided head on head. Um, her left side of her face hit the back right of my head. And uh, that is a moment and a feeling and a sound that I will never forget. Um, from there, all I remember is somersaulting down the hill. I lost my gloves, I lost my ski poles, I lost my skis. And I remember coming to and realizing, holy shit, this is really bad. I jumped up and I started yelling her name and I started running up back up the hill. And um, the one other person who in our group who had seen the crash was standing just next to the line of trees and she said, I think she's in the trees. I saw her go in the trees. So I start running up through the trees, yelling her name. And um, I found her upside down in a tree well. Uh, if anyone doesn't know what a tree well is, it's um, typically at the base of a pine tree. When it snows, the, pine un the snow underneath the tree kind of creates a funnel towards, down towards the base of the tree. And that snow is usually very soft and um, fluffy and it's once if you fall in especially head first it's very difficult to get out um, so me and, a, and another person who happened to just be in the same area I, I never met him before and I never saw him again after that but uh, we slowly pulled her out and she was unconscious and um, I thought she was dead um, and she uh, slowly came to and uh, that was the beginning of a very long journey for both of us. Uh, from there, we had ski patrol come and uh, take her down the mountain. I felt pretty funny, but uh, I insisted that I was okay, and I had had some concussions in the p past, so I was like, okay, I know this is gonna get worse before it gets better, um, and, and that's how I went on for the rest of the day. Uh, we got her to the hospital, checked her out, um, and they said, yep, you've got a, you, you know, this is saying to her, you've got a concussion. And, uh, you know, if you feel anything, uh, any vomiting, any sickness, come back the next day. The next, that night, the next morning, I uh, woke up and I felt like death. I realized I could barely use my eyes. Um, I couldn't walk. And um, I couldn't look at anything uh, with my eyes open. I was in a dark room with about two pairs of sunglasses on, and that's about as far as I could get, and that lasted for a couple weeks. Um, when I realized things weren't getting better, but they were only getting worse, I made the decision to go to New York to find, oh God, um, okay. I went to New York. I got was lucky to see some of the best neurological care uh, that's there. I spent nine months in vision rehab 
pretty much retraining my eyes how to read. Uh, for day one was looking at a letter on the wall and I said, you gotta be kidding me. That spent nine months and it's something I'm still working on today. The, the awesome part of this story, and five minutes goes by really quickly, uh, the awesome part of the story is as I was in rehab, um, I also tore my rotator cuff and chipped my C6 vertebrae. Uh, so I've been piecing myself back together and it's been a full-time job for the last two years, but I've had an incredible support circle around me, including my parents who are here tonight. And uh, that includes friends and family, um, but also a group of international guys who came out of nowhere, uh, who I met in New York, um, just outside in the Hudson Valley, who were in that area trying to build a boat out of plastic bottles to take it down the Mississippi River. Um, I met these guys, I said, I think you're crazy, um, but uh, how can I help? Um, and they had never been to this area of the States and some of them had never been to the States before. So for the next two months, I offered them uh, my family's old barn to build the boat in. I helped them uh, be the liaison, and it was just awesome to be a part of something again um, because I pretty much for the last year and a half had spent uh, that time with sitting down with my eyes closed, um, and that was it. I had lost all ability to read, use the computer, look at a computer, uh, or watch television. Um, and so to be a part of this meant a lot. Um, these guys initially had asked if I wanted to join them going down the Mississippi River. Uh, they were originally, they were gonna paddle this boat down the, the river and I said, hell no, uh, that sounds really boring. Uh, and I also just physically didn't think I could do it. But uh, after two months of getting to know these guys and having meals with them and uh, they helped drive me around because I, I had to stop driving and um, when we got the boat together and they built it and tested it on the Hudson River and then they took it apart and they loaded it into a 26 foot U-Haul truck and the two Swiss guys drove it to St. Paul in two days. I said, I'm really gonna miss these guys and I gotta at least spend one day on the Mississippi River with them. So I flew to St. Paul and I had to, um, to enable to, for me to get through the airport, I had to have someone push me in a wheelchair through and that was really hard for me, uh, just working on the humble part of it. But uh, I did it and I got there and um, we rebuilt the boat, with me pretty much sitting on the side with my eyes closed, asking how I could help. Um, we got the boat in the water and we launched this boat that was made out of plastic bottles and recycled dock wood um, April, May, June, uh, at the end of June this summer. And I, that, I ended up spending, uh, instead of two days, I ended up being able to stay s seven days with them. I went from St. Paul all the way down to La Crosse, Wisconsin. And um, I spent most of that time with my, with my eyes closed on the boat. It's an open deck, no cabin, nothing. Uh, we, we camped along the shore and we cooked and uh, we were greeted by the generosity of so many people, uh, which was really affirming for me. Um, all in all, I, I ended up having to leave that trip twice to go back and see my doctors back in New York. But uh, this group of guys, two Swiss guys, a guy from New Zealand, a guy from Hong Kong, and uh, one from France, um, 
they made this entire journey down the Mississippi from St. Paul all the way into the Gulf of Mexico. It's about 1,800 miles. It took them 60 days. I joined them three separate times uh, for about 30 days in all. Um, and when we got to the Gulf of Mexico after avoiding all the flooding in Baton Rouge this summer, um, it was amazing and uh, it made, it told me that uh, I, there's, even though I can't read right now or can't use my eyes, but there are things that I can do. And uh, it was a wonderful trip and uh, I was happy to be a part of it. Thank you. I want to bring up Jerry Riley just because he's going to tell a really quick story. It's the first story he ever told three years ago when we first met him and we fell in love with him. And he's told so many stories with us that he ended up co-producing with us and ending up doing his own story slams in Newton. So our sound man up there, Justin, told a story tonight, uh, you know, about the lightning in the bunkhouse. And I, it was a great story. And he said, you know, it's about nostalgia. And I'm feeling really nostalgic tonight because... You know, this is the last night of the third season of The Mosquito, and it's been an amazing thing for these three years. Um, and I stumbled on it. I saw the yellow, a yellow sign. I we come down Wellfleet every year. I saw this yellow sign one day, Mosquito, and I thought, that's intriguing. And I got there, and they said, oh, well, anybody can put your name in the hat. And I thought, well, I can put my name in the hat. And so I put my name in the hat, and I told the story. And, I, and then I got totally hooked on it, and I've been doing it ever since. And then I stole their idea and did my own thing, and so that's great. But anyway, these two have created some magic. And you, tonight, it's, it was, tonight was unbelievable magic. Caitlin and Vanessa. I love these women. They're just, they're amazing. And it's a magical thing. So anyway, I'll tell you the first story that I that the first night, and it could have been a broken story, but the theme that night was smitten. So I will tell it as you know in the theme of smitten, and it's a story about everybody has when you you know no matter how adventurous you are in the rest of your life, the first hour when you wake up in the morning, you like routine. You don't like surprises. You know you, you like a routine. So a few years ago, my. We, my wife and I and my daughter, we, we moved to a new house and everything changed. And my daughter was going into the first grade. We we're in a new house, a new neighborhood. And so every, suddenly the whole morning routine changes. So it's first day, we need a new routine. So I set the alarm, I wake up, I get down, I put on the coffee, hop in the shower. By the time I get out, my wife's up with my daughter and she cooks breakfast and then I walk my daughter to the bus stop for the first grade. Now, we never I never did a school bus stop thing. This is the only thing to me. Walk to the bus stop, meet the other thing, put, the, put my daughter on the bus, and off she goes. And then I walk. I thought, like, I'll, walk, I'll see my new neighborhood. And I walk this mile loop around uh, back to my house. And I go down the big hill, and I pass the crossing guard, and I get down the bottom of the hill, and I, there's a variety store. I get a cup of coffee. and. And that became my new routine. So the next day I go, the same thing, the bus stop, the crossing guard down the hill, get my cup of coffee, and on it goes. So it was maybe the third or fourth day on this, you know, my new morning routine. I'm walking down the big hill, and there's a guy coming up in a wheelchair, electric wheelchair, and he's going by. And I'm kind of a friendly guy, and as he's coming by, I say, good morning. And the guy wheels on me and goes, asshole! And I, like, I freaked out, just like completely rattled me, and he's gone. And I was like, what the hell was that all about? Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it, it was kind of inexplicable. I get my coffee, and I go on my way. 
couple of more days go by, you know, go down the walk, the coffee, and whatever. A couple of days later, here he comes again. So this time, I'm kind of nervous. I'm a little wary. I'm not saying anything. He goes by, and as he comes by, I don't say anything. But just as he's like right here, I kind of just give him a little acknowledgement, a little nod of the head. And as soon as I give him the nod, asshole! And I was like, fuck. So, uh, so when I get down to the coffee shop, I, I go in there. Now, I'm, I'm the new guy, and people hang out there in the morning, and it's like the regulars. And I go in, I said, do you know a guy in a wheelchair? And they all start roaring, like, what's he done now? And, and I, so I tell them this whole story. They think this is hysterical, and they go, look, don't worry about it. It's not personal. It's not about you. That's just a guy. He's, you know, he he got in an accident a few years ago. He's kind of, he's not quite right in the head, but it's not, it's not uh, personal. And I'm like, okay. Well, for the next year and a half, maybe two, sometimes three mornings a week, he, I would see the guy. And once I knew this wasn't particularly about me, I got into it. So I'd see him, I'd say, good morning, asshole. <laughs> a year and a half, this went on. And I, you know, and this just became it. And when the days he wasn't there, I kind of missed him. <laughs> and, uh, and it was at that point that I realized I was smitten. You know, we had, a, we had a relationship going on. So about after a year and a half, one day I'm coming down the hill and there he is way down the bottom of the hill and he's just parked there. I don't know what's going on. I walk all the way down the bottom of the hill and when I get to the bottom, he's in, oh, good. and he kind of, you know, gestures me over. And basically it's like sort of gesture and he wants me to push him all the way up the hill. So I said, all right, his battery's dead. So I push him all the way up the hill. It's hard. It's a heavy thing, you know. So I get all the way up the hill, and he kind of gestures over here, and I put him there, and uh, he doesn't say a word. And I don't say a word, and I kind of go on my way. It's all kind of weird. So, you know, that's fine. And uh, that's a little strange, you know. Kind of broke my routine. I like routines, you know. <laughs> so anyway, two, three days later, here he comes. Up another morning. He comes by. Good morning. Just right by. Nothing. It's like, where, where's my asshole? Come on. You know? <laughs> I had ruined everything. I never got another asshole again. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us live at facebook.com forward slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Ah.